We're reading from uh, James 4, 1 through 5. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that your friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Father God, we uh, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to come and worship you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you have sent your Son to this earth to image you and to make you known, to shine the light of the glory of God. And Lord, we thank you that you have paid the ultimate sacrifice by shedding your blood on the cross so that we can be liberated from our sin and our false worship into a living and hope-giving, life-giving relationship with you, the living God. So we just simply ask, God, that you would be here this morning and you would help us to understand ourselves better and help us to worship you better. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. So there's a story in in Genesis uh, chapter 31 about Rachel and Jacob. In this situation, Jacob spends years and he finally is able to marry uh, Rachel. And uh, and as they flee Rachel's father's house, um, one last thing uh, Rachel grabs for is the the household gods. And, And what's interesting about this to me is that this is after she encounters Yahweh, the living God, We can only assume that Rachel is acquainted with and and to some extent devoted to Jacob's God, which is Yahweh. So before I continue on with that, let me just kind of say a caveat here as to where this sermon fits into the larger scheme of things here. Pastor Charlie and myself agreed that it would be good to give one sermon a year to um, family discipleship and the ministry of family discipleship here at uh, GCF. And, and because God has been teaching me personally a lot lately about idolatry and worship, that's what we're going to learn about this morning. So um, one of my main passions, one of my main desires to serve this church and to serve all of you is, um, is to see that Jesus, above all things, is worshipped. Not only when we gather corporately, but as you live your lives Monday through Saturday in your homes. Because that's where life happens. And if Jesus is exalted, if Jesus is worshipped there, that's a good thing. So that's one of the things that, when I think about the trajectory and the big picture of what family discipleship is about, really, if I could have one thing, it would be to help all of the families and the households of this church worship Jesus and Jesus alone in their homes. That's kind of what I'm, I'm driving this sermon at, is the idea of worshiping Jesus in our home, family worship. 
Now, I know that when you guys hear the term family worship, and especially coming from me, you might think immediately in your mind, okay, that's the time after dinner, the 15-minute section, that we block off and we sit down and we sing songs and we read our Bibles and, and so on and so forth. That's really not what I'm going to talk about this morning. And um, the thing is, is one of the points I'm going to make is that all of us in our households practice some form of family worship. Um, and uh, that, that might be a little bit confusing at this point, but, but let, me, let, me just, let me just say this. Worshiping Jesus in our homes is a non-negotiable thing. The form that it takes is up for grabs. And since the Bible never clearly articulates, and the Bible never says that you must worship Jesus by gathering around on the couch and opening up your Bibles and singing songs and so on and so forth, because it never actually says that and commands that, it's not a sin if you don't practice that. I just want to be clear with that, because I know that there's been times in the past where I've really pushed that really hard, and I don't want to lay any burdens on myself or you that the Bible doesn't lay on us, right? So there's no reason to lay any heavy burdens on ourselves or, or others that the Bible doesn't actually lay on us. So the, the, the family worship that I'm going to talk about today is, uh, is going to have a, a distinctly different flavor than, than that, than just focusing on you have to sit down for 15 minutes, you have to read your Bible and, 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 and pray and, and sing songs and so on and so forth. I mean, that, we do practice that, and that could be a component of it, but what I'm, what I'm after is something a little bit distinct. For the most part, we're going to pra- or talk about the, um, the role of idolatry. And then there's going to be times, I would submit to you, during this sermon, that you're probably going to wonder, how does this even fit into family worship? Because I'm talking about idolatry, and this really... This really does have effect on a personal level, too. So how does this fit into family discipleship? How does this fit into family worship? Don't worry, I'll eventually tie it all together uh, at, at some point here in the sermon. Okay, so back to this story, Rachel, um, in Genesis 31. And I'm not going to focus a lot of time on this. I'm just using it as an example. When she stole the household gods, these false gods, right? The story seemed far-fetched and unbelievable to me for a long time. When I read that, and maybe it's because, um, you know, I wondered, how can somebody live a dual life of, of worship like that? Particularly when these are physical figurines of sorts that she actually took and she knows Yahweh and yet she's, she, she, she uh, clings to these false gods. That, that, that's hard for me to imagine. I really had a hard time grasping that that could actually be possible, right? Because when I became a Christian, um, not only... Did I take my Rolling Stones t-shirt that I had and threw it away, but I went the extra step and took a pair of scissors and actually cut out, you know, that logo of theirs with the lips and the tongue coming out? No, I guess you guys don't know because we don't listen to rock and roll. That's right. (laughs) But uh, anyway, if you ever came across it... um, I cut that out and I tore, uh, I cut it to pieces. You know, I was just like adamant about doing this and I threw it in the garbage. I really wanted to destroy it. That was my goal. And the reason for that is because I had learned that these rockers, they go to like places like Africa, like Congo or wherever it is. And I found out that this particular logo was taken and adapted from some kind of false god idol worship through voodoo or something like that. So it was this adaptation. And when I learned that, I was just like, 
yuck. I wanted, I wanted to depart from it. And I was, you know, really, uh, on fire. My dad was watching what I was, what I was doing. I was just newly converted. And he was like, why don't you just throw the shirt away? Why do you have to chop it up? I was like, I must chop it up. And my dad understood. I was recently converted. He had some wisdom. He's like, okay, just, you know, let him, let him do that. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the six month rule that when you become a Christian, you shouldn't be allowed to share Christ with anybody for six months because you're so like, I'm going to take over the world for Jesus, right? <laughs> you're almost over on fire for God. That was kind of me at that point. So I was, you know, chopping up this, this thing. But anyway, I, for that reason, I had a hard time embracing the fact or getting my mind around the fact that somebody could have these household gods, these figurines, and to some extent worship the living God. And that's the way I would say that my growth has been characterized over the years, is it's been marked by greater realizations that I do, in fact, play the role of an adulterer, as James 4 says, and an idolater. Now, adultery, idolatry in the Bible, is like referring to a car as an automobile. They're interchangeable. They're different nuances of the same thing, but adultery, idolatry, all the same thing. My growth as a Christian has been marked by the realization that, yes, I do too, in fact, lead a double life, a, double, a dual life of worship. I bow down to false gods, and yes, I also worship Jesus as well. And I'm aware that most of us, in this kind of context, also understand that, yes, we do, to some extent, we do have our various ways that we worship false gods. So I'm, 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 that, that's the mindset that I'm coming into the sermon with, that all of us have a general uh, perception that, yes, in some way, shape, or form, I do give in to dual worship as well. But since we're not ancient Rome or modern-day India, where we actually have shrines and altars built with literal, tangible figurines that we're going to bow down to, I think... My suspicion is we're all a little bit muddy. The water is a little bit muddy on how we actually worship false gods, pinpointing these gods and understanding the destructive consequences to us and others around us. Okay? So really, again, what I want to help us with this morning is to pinpoint, knowing is half the battle, so we want to pinpoint how do we actually worship false gods? How do we bow down to them? How do they control us? What are their devastating effects on, on us? And how can we live lives of worship where we are bowing down to Jesus and Jesus alone? And if we can bring that into our households, namely the skill of weeding out false gods and worshiping Jesus alone, then I feel like this sermon was helpful to you. Some of you have heard of uh, Tim Keller. He's a pastor out in New York. And he calls idolatry our functional gods, right? As Christians, we state that Jesus is the God that we bow down to and worship. And that's true. I'm not taking that away from us. We are Christians. We're bought with the blood of Christ. But it's, uh, it's not true of us in every circumstance at all times. There are still crevices and nooks and crannies in our hearts where we are functionally ruled by idols, okay? So here's an example of what he means by the difference between our stated God and our functional, or, uh, uh, yeah, stated and functional. So if, we were, if you were asked to go to a rock concert, using that, that same uh, uh, analogy there, 
You might say to me, in response to my question, do you want to go to the rock concert? You might say to me, no. And you might think about it for a while and you would come back to me and say, the reason why I can't go is because, well, the tickets are kind of expensive and money's kind of tight right now, so I really can't go. That's your stated reason. But if you really search your heart, it would be more true to say that the real reason why you decided to say no to going to the rock concert is because there's somebody in the group that you just don't jive with, they rub you the wrong way, and you just don't really want to go. Now, it's true that it's probably wise for you not to spend the money and go to the concert because finances perhaps are tight, so it's not like you're lying. But underneath, the subtle reality is the thing that's actually shaping your decision and motivating your behavior is this other reason. You see, the stated reason is, I don't have enough money, but the functional reason is, I don't really like that other person, so I don't want to go for that reason. Okay, so you guys understand what I'm talking about here with the functional God? And, uh, and we can, we can uh, bring that into, basically, our relationship with Jesus. Now, if you can ask yourself, what are the things that really motivate, really determine, really guide, really shape, really influence my behavior on a day-to-day basis. Detecting this is the matter between idolatry, I would say, and true worship, right? Because what really drives you, what really motivates you, what really shapes you is your functional God. And I want to draw out, and I want to help us to detect, how do we know what our functional gods are? How do we know when we practice idolatry or spiritual adultery, as James 4 talks about? So that's the million-dollar question. How can we clearly understand our subtle idols so that we can stop worshiping them? And to do that, we need clarity on what worship is and what idolatry is. So again, Tim Keller, in his book called Counterfeit Gods, He defines an idol as anything that's more important to us than God. Or, another way to put it, anything that absorbs our our heart and our imagination more than God. So anything that is more important to us than God, or anything that absorbs our heart engagement or our imagination more than God, that plays the role of an idol. Now, when it comes to worship, I want to offer four components Um, And and again, there's probably more than this in the Bible, but for our purposes this morning, I want to talk about just the act of worship. And I want to say, all of us are worshipers. Even the person that isn't in church this morning and would say, oh, worship, religion, that's not for me, they're a worshiper. And these are the four components by which I can, uh, I'm just going to offer this to you to say, if these things match up, then you're worshiping. Number one, if something gives you identity, right? An idol is something that's so central to us that it gives you the feeling that life is worth living. Namely, I have, I have a, a meaning and fulfillment. My life has meaning if I have this, right? That's the mentality. So one act of worship, one component of worship is that it is, is something that gives us a sense of identity, a sense of meaning, a sense of worth. Number two, Something that rules our behavior or controls us, right? An idol has the place of power in our heart, and it actually controls our behavior. So idols give us identity. They rule us. 
Um, and this isn't just true of idols, but God. This is the component of worship. Something that gives us identity. Something that controls our behavior. Number three, sacrifice. And you can call this devotion. You can call this praise. You can call this adoration. You can call this love. But at some point, one act of worship is the act of sacrificing everything that we have and laying it all at the feet of that particular thing. Whether it's Jesus or whatever else it is. Right? So, if it, if it gives us identity if it uh, rules us, if it controls us, if it's something that we love to the point where we will sacrifice for it. And then last, um, so, so far, if you're looking for the acronym IRS, IRS, Identity Rule Sacrifice, that's easy to remember. Promise. An idol promises that we, if we sacrifice all for it, then we will have the peace that we're looking for, the safety, the comfort, the security, the happiness, or the hope that we're looking for. Meaningfulness, everything like that. So the components of worship, whether you believe in Jesus or not, I'm just thinking about this broadly, is if something gives you identity, rule, it has rule in your heart, if you sacrifice, if you bow down to it out of loving adoration, if it's something that you're looking to that offers you promise or reward or hope, then that's all of those things. If those things match up, you're worshiping. Now James 4, let's look at that. He asks this question, and he intends to give us an answer. What causes quarrels? And really, right now, what I'm doing is I am going down, I'm trying to basically help us to pinpoint our idols, what it looks like when we worship something other than God, and I'm tracing out what are the effects of that. Do we really benefit from worshiping our idols? So what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion, you adulterous people. So according to James, what is this thing here that causes all of our problems? What's the thing here that causes all of our problems? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So when, things, when, our, when our desire, when our passion raises to the level that we must have it, that it gives us a sense of identity, that it rules our heart, that we sacrifice for it, that's what causes our problems. That we have things that are so important to us, they take the level of a God that we're willing to do anything to get it. And that's what James is saying. Is that's the source of all of our problems. It's trying to go after the thing that means the most to us. And these passions are so strong that they functionally control our behavior. Even to the point of murder. And that's how I see that that the functional control that these gods have, that James is saying, is that your passions have raised to the level of God, and we know that because they control your behavior. What is the behavior that is exemplified here, or that, that he suggested is going on? Murder, fighting, quarreling. You see, something has become so important that it actually dictates what your behavior becomes. And if murder... How much more 
Would we do things like gossip, lie, cheat, steal? So I think the wisdom contained here suggests that these desires are so central to our identity that when they go unmet, the person will feel like life is meaningless and worthless, which is probably why they are willing to worship or to, to, is probably why they're willing to murder to get what they want. Really, if you think about the act of murder, you could ask the question, what, what's, the, what's probably the worst thing that we could do that, or the one act that is designated most to the role of God? And perhaps it is taking a human life, right? Because God is the one who offers life. He's the one who creates life. And when we murder, I think that that is the biggest depiction and the biggest display of actually standing in the place of God. When somebody murders somebody, that's the biggest, that, that, that's the biggest way that we could stand in the place of the living God and make that kind of a decision. And so what I'm saying here is that if our gods drive us to the point of standing in the place of God, doing something as horrific as murder, then it's truly a God to us. It controls our behavior to that extent. So, in that case, um, in the act of murder, fighting and quarreling, these are sacrifices that are offered to appease the functional God. So our functional God is our desire. It raises to the level of God. It controls our behavior. Now, this is, uh, this is something that I want us to think about. When we actually do this, when we actually act out to get what we want, that's an act of worship. So in this case, what James is essentially saying is, murder is an act of worship. Why? Because you are playing the role of God, right? You are appeasing the God that functionally controls your heart. So when you murder, when you fight, when you quarrel, that's an act of worship. And that's what I'm saying. In our homes, in our families, in our lives, wherever, whatever sphere of life we live in, we're all worshipers all the time. If you're fighting with somebody, it's because your God functionally is being threatened, and if you fight against them, if you quarrel against them, if you hurt them, that's an act of worship. Because that God is playing such a role in your heart to control your behavior, you're willing to do whatever it takes to get it. It's risen to the level of a functional God. So, generally speaking, James talks about passions in a very general sense. Let me just trace out a couple of other examples on a more practical level to get kind of on, on, our, on ground level here. Um, in place of the passions that we see in James 1, is it not this, your passions are at war within you? I'm going to just plug in a couple of functional gods that typically people bow down to and are controlled by. So number one would be control, right? If your passion or if your God is having control, then you believe that your life only has meaning if or when you have the measure of control that you want, Right? So in, I'm just giving practical examples here. When James says, is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You can say, is it not this that your controls are at war, that your desire for control is at war within you? So if control is the thing that gives your life meaning, then you may not murder, but you might become a micromanager of people, just for an instance. You might ma- try to micromanage people. You might threaten people to try to get them to do what you want them to do. You might become very perfectionistic. 
If your idol of control is threatened, then you may become exceedingly stressed or short-fused. These are just some symptoms of worshiping a false god in this case. All of which is done as acts of worship. So if you think about that, being overly stressed out, being short-fused is essentially an act of worship to appease your idol of control. Control has risen to the point where I have to have it so much that I'm willing to get stressed out, to get angry with you, to chew you out, whatever it is, to micromanage you, to get you to do exactly what I want you to do. That's how idolatry fleshes out. Now, I can tell you an interesting story just yesterday about how my God of control was confronted by the living God. God is always so gracious to do this. It's kind of a funny story. So I was at Kohl's yesterday shopping for a tie so I could look nice and spiffy for you all today. Karen was at a wedding. So I was on dad duty all day, and that's a little bit stressful, you know, because I'm preparing for today, and I've got three kids buzzing around, and I'm going to Kohl's. So I go in there, and I go to the tie section, and strategically enough, the women's intimate apparel is right across from the tie section. So I'm trying to get in and get out as fast as I can to get that tie and get out of there, right? And I'm hoping that my kids don't cause too much trouble. Unfortunately, I have a three-year-old son. And as I'm in the zone looking for this tie, as focused as I can be, all of a sudden, to my horror, I hear in his loudest outdoor voice, like he's at a sporting event, Daddy, Daddy, look at these! Daddy, Daddy, look at these! Come over here! Touch these! (laughs) So I'm looking over at where Ben is, and he's got locked in his grip some kind of women's apparel that is very specific to women. Let's just put it that way. So I'm trying to get control of the situation, obviously. Because I'm sitting here thinking, how do I... I don't like this. <laughs> there's really no good, there's no good way to handle this. I mean, either I can get into a yelling match with my three-year-old son over the winter women's intimate apparel section, or I can actually go in there, and that's like uncharted territory. So I have to go over there to fish him out of there. And of course, as I'm going over there, all I can think about is what if one of you just happened to be shopping at Kohl's. <laughs> Is that Pastor Kevin over there in the women's intimate apparel? Honestly, my son, he's over there. I'm trying to fish him out of there. So God has a sense of humor, does he not, in confronting our idols. And thankfully, thankfully in that situation... I was able to remind myself that my security and my stance is bought in Jesus. And what you all think of me can't change that. So I didn't have to flip out. Jesus saved me from that. Comfort is another God that we typically serve. If your passion or your God is comfort then you believe that your life only has meaning if or when you can maintain a certain level of pleasure or experience of comfort. This could mean the social status that you have, the car that you drive, the house you live in, the neighborhood that you 
do that you live in, if that that can potentially become a place that controls the things that you do on a daily basis, or a more practical way that the God of comfort can manifest itself, I know in my own heart, is daydreaming on the way home from work about coming home to a nice, clean, and orderly house, right? That's quiet. (laughs) I said daydream. That's quiet and clean and put together, and I can just walk through the door and grab a soda and sit in my comfy chair and watch TV and just check out of life and relax, right? Now, that can control my behavior, and if that is threatened, then I allow myself the right to yell, to get mad, to get angry, to be manipulative, all of these things, to disengage and to miss the opportunity to serve my spouse and to serve my children and to grow with them. And that's what worship of the idol of comfort looks like. And that's a dysfunctional form of family worship that screws up our family and drives it further apart. Another one is approval. If you're passionate to God, is the approval for approval, then you believe that your life only has meaning or you only have values if others like you and accept you. So it works itself out, the worship of that idol works itself out through maybe codependent relationships that says, I need you to need me. So you get involved with all kinds of people and you're trying to fix them because really all you, all you really need is you need them to need you. It may, it may look like gossip if your idol is, is uh, approval, so others will like you instead of rivals, you put them down the chain and you put yourself at the top of the list and people will like you and not others. Maybe it's insecurity, right? Um, one of the ways that this manifests itself, perhaps, is, you know, I'm so bad at this. And really, that's your cue for saying, oh, no, you're not. You're really good at it, actually. Oh, thank you. I'm really insecure, and I need you to affirm that. Or timidity. Maybe in your relationships, you sweep things under the rug because you hate confrontation. You don't want anybody to be mad at you. And you know what happens when you sweep things under the rug for a long time. Explosion. And again, all of those things, I submit to you, are, 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 are bowing down and are acts of worship to our functional gods. And they create all kinds of havoc in our lives. Last one that I'll mention, power and influence. If your passion or your God is for power and influence, then you believe that your life only has meaning or you only have worth if or when you can exercise power or influence over others. So this might lead you to be manipulative, deceitful, lying, to get what you want, to get one up on somebody else. To become a workaholic, maybe a gossiper even, to put other people down. Or on the flip side, if you don't get that power and influence that you want, you turn into a self-pitying and passive failure that wallows in despair. And again, when passion, when your passion is power, influence, approval, control, or anything else that can act as a functional God, all the negative behaviors from gossip to deceit to self-pity to anger, those are all acts of worship. 
and devotion to satisfy our idols. Idolatry leaves us with the feeling of regret and guilt when we look to the past. Past. When we look over our shoulders, we realize that we've worshipped our functional gods, our idols, you're left with this trail of guilt and, and regret. And when you look to the future, it doesn't get any better. It's anxiety and hopelessness and despair. Because we know in the end, for the moment, maybe our gods do offer us that comfort and security and joy that we long for, but we know it's a fleeting thing. And the more we stake our lives on them, the more anxious we get about the future because it's so uncertain and we know that they, deep down they can't, they can't deliver us. So my guess is that you haven't thought, because I haven't, so I'm just you know, putting words in your mouth perhaps, but until this week I never thought about self-pity or gossip or all these things as acts of worship. But if our passions are ruling us and we are devoted to them as a God, then all of the negative and destructive behaviors that come from our devotion to them are indeed acts of worship. And maybe I would submit to you that the reason why we don't connect those types of behaviors with worship is because we don't have a good, clear conviction that our identity as human beings is interconnected, and one in the same as a worshiper. Our identity as a human is a worshiper. You are human, therefore you are a worshiper. You see, you were created in the image of God, therefore you were created to image God and reflect God. One way that I see this really clearly is in Exodus chapter 20. You guys know what Exodus 20 is about. It's about the Ten Commandments. When God comes... To give his people identity. That's what he's doing. He's giving them identity as his people. What are the first two commandments? The first two and great commandments that he gives them is, don't have any other gods before me. They're related to their role as worshipers. Which means I think the Bible makes a very clear case that our identity as a human being, as an image bearer of God, is a worshiper. And the reason why I think that it's disconnected for us, again, I'll say it, that things like gossip and all of these things are acts of worship is because we don't truly grasp the fact that I am a worshiper. That's who I am. That's my identity. And thus, I'll submit to you that all of our problems that we face in life stem from worshiping false gods. Because if we're created and our identity is to worship the living God, then everything unravels and goes wrong when we don't do that. So all of your issues, all of your problems, all of the things that keep you up at night, I think are connected to idolatry, to worship issue. Your problems are worship problems. Now let me take this one step further. If you're with me up to this point... I want to drive this home by saying that idol worship is essentially self-worship. When we bow down to idols, really think about it. All you're doing is you are extending out from your desires and your passions, everything that you think should be out there, 
And you bring that out, and you create this picture, and you bow down to it. You know what that is? That's self-worship. You're worshiping yourself. When our, when our passions shape exactly what we want and everything that we think should be, and we bow down to it, that's just a sophisticated and complex version of self-worship. Now let me give you three reasons why that's really horrible news. That idolatry is essentially self-worship. First of all, self-worship is imprisonment and deception. So when... While idolatry promises us escape from the problems, it fails miserably every time, and it leaves us back in the same place that we left. Let me give you this story. I've had some computer problems recently. And to make a long story short, the way that it works is you schedule a time on the computer, online, and, um, and, and, and you go to the store and you have a one-on-one setup, right, with a, with a genius. They call him a genius. And, um, and they will troubleshoot, and they will try to help fix your problem. So I do that. I go in. They tell me, okay, your computer has a problem. We need to fix it. I didn't know if I wanted to spend the money, so I took the computer back home, and I weighed my options, right? So then, a couple of days later, I decide, okay, yes, I need to go forward. I'm going to do that. I'm going to drop the computer off. So I go online. I go to the computer, and I see if I can schedule an appointment with this person so I can go and drop off my computer, well, when I was going to be down in the area, there wasn't any, there wasn't any time slots that were open, right? So um, I decided, well, all I need to do is actually hand the computer off to them and tell them to fix it. They have the diagnosis already written up, so I just want to drop it off. So I get the number, I get the phone number, I poke around online to see if there's any other options. There's nothing online. Okay, so I go, I get the number, and on my way down, I call them to see if I can just drop off the computer and let them know, Right? Now, I call them up, and really, you don't talk to a person. You talk to an automated system that is capable of handling full sentences, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? It's, it's really a lot of fun to talk to those, those things, right? It's kind of like a person, but actually it's not at all. So there you are. I'm trying to, okay, so it's like, how can I help you today? So you're saying, well, okay, what's, how do I word my situation? Can I drop off my computer without making an appointment? Okay, tell me, do you want to talk to a Mac specialist or do you want to schedule a one-on-one appointment? I'm like, those are my only two options here. All right. So I'm thinking, I don't want to wind up talking to somebody in California or India or something like that about some technical thing. All I want to do is ask them a question if I can drop off my computer. So I say, well, okay, I'll schedule a one-on-one appointment. That seems like my best option. So I say one-on-one appointment. Then it says, you can schedule, you can only schedule one-on-one appointments on your computer. Just log on to www.this and that. And then it says, tell me, is there any other way I can help you? And I'm thinking, you have not been any help at all. (laughs) I was kind of agitated, and (laughs) just for fun, I'll throw this out there, I decided, I wonder what, I, what, I wonder what it would do if I said, my house is burning down, it's on fire right now. You know what it does? <laughs> There's a pre-programmed typing sound. Like it's actually hearing what I'm saying and considering it. Oh, so you say your house is on fire. 
Yeah, is my house on fire? Can you give me any, you know, advice or is there an app maybe I can download or something like that? <laughs> I was like, this is so silly. It's so silly if you think about it. Like it's taking my, and I was like, I see, I proved it. This thing is, it's, it can't really help my problem, right? Because, because really, <laughs> if it was really as sophisticated as it makes itself out to be, it would have just said, you know, you should call the fire department. But it, and then it goes into, let me see if I can find somebody to help you with that. <laughs> so the point is, that, that, was, that was just uh, gratuitous there. The point is, I started off online. That was my problem. I couldn't get my problem solved there. And then I talked to the guy. I go to him expecting that he would be able to help my situation. And really, where does he point me? He points me back to the online page. That was my problem in the first place. I was trying to solve that problem. He pointed me right back to it. And that's what idolatry does. We pull out ourselves. We pull out our desires. We bow down to it. And essentially, all it proves to be in the end is pointing us back to us. If we're worshiping ourselves, I am the problem. I am setting up an idol and I bow down to it because I want it to solve my problem. And really all it does is point it back to me. I need to be liberated from my problem. I need to be liberated. And that's why Exodus 20, chapter, uh, chapter 20, verse 1, right off the bat says, I am the Lord your God. I am the one who called you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He makes that very clear. That he and his and worshiping him is the solution to our problem. It's the escape from the imprisonment of myself. I hope that makes sense to you all. So that's the first reason I see idolatry, self-worship is so horrific. Number two, it keeps us from the joys of liberation of worshiping the living God. And number three, idolatry is nothing more than imaging and displaying our brokenness and our dysfunction. If you wonder, why is family and why is my life so dysfunctional? It's because of idolatry. When you pull your, all of your brokenness and your dysfunction out and you bow down to it and you worship it, then basically what you're doing is you're imaging, you're reflecting that to those around you. And that causes problems. Right? So in conclusion, let me bring this to a close here. Instead of imaging yourself and your dysfunction, and your rebellion to the people around you, instead, image Jesus. The one who took on flesh and forgives our sins and offers us grace. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He's the one who deserved to be treated as God, but rather, he did not count equality equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was wrongfully accused. He suffered unjustly. Image him. Put him on display. Worship him. Let him control your every impulse and your every move. He's the one who loves us unconditionally and the one who really cares about his Father's glory and doing his Father's will. Therefore, with Jesus, there's no hidden or secret agenda that he's trying to push or he's trying to coerce you into or he's trying to manipulate others into. He never gossiped. He never 
bent the truth, but instead he always and only spoke the truth in love. He's very direct. He was filled with patience. He was filled with compassion. He was tough when he needed to be tough. He was tender when he needed to be tender. Image Jesus. And by so doing, you worship him. Strive to let Jesus be your functional God in all areas of your life. And he will take care of you. Your household, your work relationships, everything will be the better for it. He will serve you more than you will serve him. If you just make him your God in every and all situations. He will make your home a rich and happy place. He will make it to be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Because it will shine with the light of God if only Jesus is imaged. Image Jesus to one another as family worship. Make that your spiritual act of worship. To image Jesus all the time in all of your relationships. Image him to your spouses. Image him to your children and make his saving grace so sweet to their tongue and attractive to their hearts. Weed out the idols of your children's hearts until they learn to weed them out for themselves. As Americans, we always look for the magic pill. We want to read the book on parenting that's going to fix our kids. The reality is we're always going to deal with idols and weeding them out is like gardening. You always have to stay on it. You're never going to finally, once and for all, get rid of all the idols. But we have to address them. We have to learn how to address them. Teach them. Teach your children how to do this for themselves. Shepherd their hearts and point out where they are bowing down to a false god so that they will know that and they will learn how to worship and image Jesus to their siblings. Worship Jesus on Sunday. Worship him Monday through Saturday as well. So I'll end this sermon, much the way Joshua closed, after offering a careful consideration in the end of Joshua chapter 24, when he looked at the gods, the false gods that the, the Israelites' fathers bowed down to, and then he considered the works of the Lord God. And he said, Choose for yourself. I've put on the table our false gods. I put on the table Jesus. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's true for us as well. We will serve Jesus. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and we simply pray, Lord God, that you will help us to worship you and you alone. Help us, Lord God, have the skill of being able to detect where we bow down to false gods and give us the grace that we need, the right tools to weed out those gods and learn to turn our heart's affection to you and you alone. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be our functional God. And we pray this in your name. Amen.